Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and I'm excited to bring the crew together tonight for a, a good topic that uh, is going to be uh, something we need to consider moving forward. And I'm looking forward to uh, just having this discussion. Uh, we'll get into the rest of the meat of today's topic soon enough. But before we can get to that, we have to invite my co-host Sam on the show. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. How are things going on the East Coast? They are good. I'm prepping for my uh, trip. My wife and I are taking a little vacation and going away for a little bit, but we'll be back next week or after next week and um, back in the saddle here at the podcast. So it'll be nice for you. Yeah. And we even have the weather squatch, Mr. Kyle Nelson, who just ran screaming from the Midwest <laughs> because the weather was so dicey. So now he's back in the Colorado mountains where all the snow is. So hi, Kyle. Hello, Sam. Hello, everyone out there in disaster podcast land. Yes, indeed. Uh, just got back from a little teaching trip in the Midwest, helping some uh, local agencies prepare for social media monitoring and engagement with the upcoming uh, Republican and Democratic national conventions. And we were treated, my co-instructor and I, to uh, a severe line of tornado-worn storms, as well as some freezing precipitation the following morning. So it reminded me definitely of growing up in the Midwest and also why I'm very happy to be in Colorado. <laughs> very good. How are things in the South, Dr. Joe? Uh, well, we had some very windy weather uh, yesterday. Actually blew some stuff off my roof. Uh, and uh, much colder today, but uh, a little bit of rain. Other than that, doing fine. And uh, per Kyle's description, it is yet another reason that we blame Kyle for the next <laughs> around. So, thanks, Kyle. Well done. Yeah, we haven't had to blame the Kyle uh, uh, podcast for a while. So what do you know about, uh, have you been following what might be going on this week in the weather, Kyle? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, some Pretty heavy snows for uh, California mountains, uh, measuring in the several feet of accumulation it's looking like with an atmospheric river event moving on shore. And then also a uh, system moves its way into the the, Gulf's, the Gulf Coast, so Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, dumping some heavy rain there. But otherwise very windy with some fire weather conditions taking hold over the, uh, the central and the Great Plains there. And uh, even right just a couple days ago, we had some two wildfires pop off in, I believe it was Texas and Oklahoma, and they grew very, very rapidly with those very dry fuels, low humidities, and high winds in place. So a quick start to fire season on the Great Plains, it looks like. Yeah, it's been pretty dicey. Yeah, really? I think the uh, I think the fire in Texas uh, officially became their largest fire on record today. Yes, yes, it did. It was over like a million acres or something. Yeah, crazy. But there's a lot of other fires going on right now, too. And it's only the first of March. It's not even what we used to consider fire season. So that's pretty scary stuff. But we've had the wind out here. We had a couple pretty windy days here. Well, we're going to talk about something other than um, the weather. And this is something we may have spent a little bit of time on when it was all going on, but I think there's a lot of lessons learned we can pull out of this. And that was the situation with the young man that got um, 
well, there's a long story here, but he was arrested by police and the questions about why that happened is something we'll bother to go into. But they did a chokehold on him. We'll mention that. But then when the paramedics got there, they gave him 500 milligrams of ketamine, which is in their protocol. But if I can find that part, um, they were saying he was 220 pounds, which would have might have been appropriate, except for the fact he was 140 pounds. So, you know, he died, and then there was all this back and forth on who was actually responsible for that. And I think everybody took a hit on it. Um, what is the dosage of, let's just use Memphis as an example, what is the appropriate protocol and dosage for ketamine administration? And it's for a specific purpose. What do you have for that, for your medics? Well, the, the, the dosage varies depending on the effect that you're looking for, right? We, we use ketamine for uh, an adjunct to pain control. We use it for airway management, and we use it for behavioral control. So it, it varies depending on the, uh, uh, you know, what you're using the drug for and how you're giving the drug IV versus IM, et cetera. Yeah, in this case, it was IM, if I believe correctly um so the medics of course were accused in the indictment of, of failing to follow medical protocols and there's more to that um first of all he was handcuffed when the medics arrived and they didn't really talk to him they were just listening to what the police were saying which they were claiming he was going for their gun and, and this that and the other thing which you know hasn't really been substantiated but they didn't check his vital signs uh, prior or after or properly monitor him after giving him the ketamine. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I think that's part of what I wanted to talk about tonight was sort of breaking down the, the apparent issues in this case um, to make it less specific about this case and more what are the take-home messages for EMS providers uh, in the field. Uh, we can certainly spend some time talking about ketamine um, in and of itself. Uh, that's that's almost a separate discussion. Um, but I think, I think there are some pretty substantial lessons to be learned for EMS practitioners. Yes, absolutely. We'll go ahead with that, Joe, if you want. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, so uh, uh, let me start by uh, sort of reiterating what Sam has said. Right. So this was a this was a man that had a pretty aggressive interaction with law enforcement, um, uh, and. Uh, allegedly was in a very agitated and delirious state uh, when EMS arrived. Uh, and part of, part of the issue that I think really got the EMS providers in trouble here 
was um, well, two or three things really. So, uh, so the, the first one of those, I think, was it seemed very clear that there was not a very clear policy or procedure related to who's in charge of what, meaning law enforcement or EMS, who's in charge of the patient, when is he a patient, when is he a perpetrator or whatever the language is for law enforcement. Um, So I think that that was an area that was very gray and set the stage for some bad decision making and um, ultimately got folks in trouble. Uh, I think it was also never really very clear about why EMS elected to give this man medications. Um, I think you can make a case, as Sam was talking about earlier, that the dosing here was a bit higher than it might should have been for a person of his weight. Ketamine's a pretty safe drug in general, so uh, even though the dose was a bit higher than it might should have been, it's it's hard to figure out how much impact that actually had uh, to the whole thing. Um, but I think subsequently there were some issues on the part of EMS that were the way they were handled subsequently led to um, digging a deep hole that became impossible to get out of both at, at the time of the incident and later on in court. So uh, having said that is kind of the, I'm sorry, Sam, go ahead. No, I, I was just um, reflecting on the fact of what you were saying, which was who's in charge. And I would assume, and I know a lot of protocols reflect this, that when EMS shows up, the patient belongs to EMS. Well, um, yeah, that, yes, you, you would you would think that. But, you know, I think the challenge here is that uh, there's an awful lot of assumptions that go on. And um, uh, it, it's never really a clear handoff, as it were. So. I think part of the concern here is that, and part of part of what's happened with ketamine particularly, is that there's a perception that uh, EMS gets called to the scene by law enforcement who has been aggressively interacting with this person. Uh, Oftentimes, they've been fighting and running and, uh, you know, under extreme physical exertion. Uh, And law enforcement's been physically trying to restrain him and has struggled to do so and is asking EMS to 
assist them in getting this guy under control so that we can stop fighting him and we can take him in. And I think the issue for EMS is, um, first of all, that's not our job. Uh, Secondly, we don't sedate people so that we can allow them to be arrested. That's not the purpose of sedation or chemical restraint or whatever you want to call it. And I think that that gets lost in the interaction between EMS and police uh, or law enforcement or whatever kind. So I, I think that the first thing that needs to be really clear here is that when EMS arrives to one of these scenes and there is uh, obvious evidence that there's been a physical altercation and a patient who's agitated and difficult to control and assaulting others, including law enforcement and whatever else might be going on, EMS needs to be really clear with law enforcement that our job is to assess and care for this patient. And a conscious decision needs to be made on the part of EMS that we are going to consider chemical sedation on this patient so that we can do our job. And by we, I mean, can EMS can do our job. So, so I think part of what we have to do is we have to, we have to look at these patients that are in this hyper agitated state and we have to appreciate that about 10% of them die unexpectedly. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that, um, some of which are obvious. Uh, they've been physically assaulted uh, or they have been put in a position where they cannot breathe adequately or they are intoxicated on some substances that result in bad things happening, whether they are interacting with police or sitting in a bedroom. Um, But also an awareness on the part of EMS that because these patients are in a hyper agitated state and have been fighting and running and whatever else they've been doing, extreme physical activity, they are all likely to be hyperthermic. They're likely to be acidotic from muscle breakdown from all the extreme physical exertion. They're likely to be hyperkalemic, meaning their potassium levels are likely to be up. They're likely or possibly have low blood sugar. Maybe they are intoxicated on alcohol. Maybe they're intoxicated on drugs. Maybe both. Maybe they're head injured. Maybe they uh, uh, have a psychiatric illness that's been worsened by, you know, some other 
drug, medication, toxin, whatever. The point here is EMS needs to appreciate the fact that this patient is in a situation that has a lot of things that in combination frequently result in sudden death. And so the decision to administer a sedating agent to calm this patient enough to allow for an assessment to be done is a medical decision. And we're giving a medication so that I can do an assessment and then I can look for those things we've just been talking about and I can do what I can do to potentially intervene to prevent some of those things from potentially causing this person's death. And, and I think part of the part of the problem here is that the the appearance is that we have given the drug so that the guy will stop fighting the police so that they can finish doing whatever it is they're doing. And then when we administer that medication, we fail to follow through with, one, assessing the patient for all those items we were just talking about, and two, initiating therapy to, pre- to attempt to prevent those things from resulting in a bad outcome. Am I making sense here? Yeah. You know, a related question on that, with the two-medic system, and one's the patient man and decides to inject a medication, and the other one does not. Uh, How does it work in your world as far as who's responsible? Is the second one just as responsible as the one giving the medication? Because it, it, it... he one of them faces 16 years in prison, but the other one faces six years in prison. But if he wasn't responsible for patient care, was he responsible for? I, mean, I don't know if he knew the dosage that was being given or anything, but does that feel right to you? Well, I, I think uh, I don't know enough details to answer that question specifically, Sam. I think that it it varies from system to system. In that case, there were two medics on the scene. It's my recollection that the medic that injected the meds got the meds from a different unit and medic that showed up on scene in response, right? So I'm assuming that one of these medics was like on some kind of first response vehicle and the other maybe on the ambulance or something. I don't don't recall that specifically because it's been a while since I've looked at at the case. But... You know, uh, uh, my point here is I think there's a lot of variability from agency to agency there about who's responsible and who's in charge of patient care things, as well as the responsibilities and the expectations of the rest of the response team to point out uh, concerns or raise red flags or kind of go, hey, you sure that's the right dose? 
you know, we're, we're there to three brains are better than one. And the reason is we have different opinions and we look at different things and we need to take advantage of that as opposed to shut up and give me the drug that I told you to give me. Um, instead trying to utilize those additional resources there to say, you know, let's both make sure this is the right drug at the right dose. Yeah. Jamie, any, any thoughts from you so far? Uh, well, I'm listening to Joe's assessment and, you know, I, whenever I've covered these particular types of situations in the past, and they do crop up from time to time where providers are, are, being held responsible for a poor outcome, in this case, a situation where a patient died. Um, I, you know, there are facts in the case that can be read and the verdict has come in. So blame has been assigned. And our, I think, duty moving forward is to look at how we can improve our systems to make sure this doesn't happen in our situations when we're in the field. And, that's what I try to take away from things like this is, all right, what's the what's the lesson to be learned here? And I think that some Joe's covered some important things. Um, be aware of your protocols. Understand that once you take patient care, you are responsible for patient care. Um, don't don't assume the police are on your side when they have their own agenda and situation that they're trying to take care of. Um, once you're brought in and you assume care patient, the patient is yours, unless there is some specific protocol that has some kind of joint custody, which I'm not aware of, at least not in any situation in, in protocols that I've ever read in, in the various places that I've looked at. Um, certainly not in Maryland. So that's, that's kind of where I stand. Jamie, I think, I think you, oh, yeah. uh, you summarize that very nicely, right? Uh, I, as I look at this from what can the rest of EMS learn from what happened in this case, to me, there's a few things that uh, mirror what you just pointed out that are the take-home messages, and that is, EMS needs to understand very clearly how to interact with law enforcement in these cases, who is in charge of what, and EMS needs to be very clear with law enforcement that I'm not going to give that drug because you asked me to, to help restrain this patient. If I think it's appropriate to give this drug so that I can do an assessment and treat, then I will do so, and this is my patient. I own it. I think if we don't do anything else, it's own the patient. Yeah. The other piece of that is once that conversation, if you will, has happened with law enforcement and a decision has been made to administer a sedating agent, or even if it hasn't, or if the decision has been made not to administer a sedating agent, the paramedic's responsibility here is to perform to the best of their ability an assessment of the patient and to initiate appropriate therapies to deal with whatever it is that's going on. 
I think the failures in this case were the assessment of the patient was very superficial and very weak. And the and there was effectively no treatment rendered of any sort. So my my approach here and my my lesson learned here is in the in the situation where it appears the patient's level of agitation is so significant that they need sedation then you need to in your head EMS justify the fact that the risk of me giving this drug is less than the risk of the bad things that might happen if I don't assess and manage this patient. Mm -hmm. I don't think in a lot of cases that's a difficult case to make, particularly in a situation like this one where there's obviously been physical assault, agitated behavior, um, you know, running for the last three miles, uh, fighting with people, bizarre behavior, you know, the, the whole bit. I mean, uh, the, the whole thing in Toto kind of says, wow, this guy was seemed to be pretty agitated based on what I can what I can learn here. Right. In his case, though, the patient was actually on the ground, not very responsive already uh, and still got medication. And then, yeah, that was another factor. And, of course, I was going to ask you, too, the, the chokehold that they did prior to the medic's arrival. I don't, I don't recall that specifically, and, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to comment on it because I just don't remember enough details about that to say anything of any value. Well, I, you know, yeah. From could, the could that I have been impactful? Obviously, it could have. Yeah. Uh, you know. And that's what they were going back and forth on. Sure. But one comment that was made said they might have considered it a natural death if the patient had an undiagnosed medical illness that led to excited delirium, if his intense physical exertion combined with a narrow coronary artery, of course he's only 23, led to an arrhythmia, if he had an asthma attack, which this kid did have asthma, or aspirated vomit while restrained. How often do you see those things? Well, I think the short answer is we don't know. Um, you know, it, it, and that's kind of my point is that in situations like this, the, the probability of an unexpected cardiac arrest is about 10%. And there's no way to know that this guy's got a quote unquote narrowed coronary artery. Uh, there's no way to know how prone he is to some sort of arrhythmia. And it's very difficult to ascertain what might the contribution of um, acidosis, dehydration, alcohol, some kind of drugs, high potassium levels, high temperature levels, uh, low blood sugar have on whatever underlying medical condition may or may not be there. And, and the shorter answer is we don't know. There's no way to ascertain the impact of those different things. What what impact might ketamine have, if any? I, I don't know the answer to that. But I think the, the point here is if the decision is made to administer a medication to calm the patient down enough so that we can 
assess and treat, we damn well better assess and treat. So it might take four people to hold the guy down until I can shoot some drugs into his arm. But as soon as he is calm enough for me to do it, he better get an assessment that better be looking at all the things I can think of that might result in delirious behavior, agitation, and or might kill this guy. So in my opinion, they need a blood sugar. They need to be stuck on a cardiac monitor so I can look at the T-wave and make sure that his potassium level doesn't appear to be elevated. They need IV fluids to reverse acidosis and dehydration. They need potentially some sugar. I don't know what their blood sugar is. They need cooling off in case their core temperature is 105 degrees. Whatever we can do to address and try to reverse those issues that are compounding that patient's risk for sudden death, we need to do. That's why we sedated them in the first place. So we could do that. So do it. In this guy's case, it wasn't done. They didn't even assess for that stuff. And so... You know, I think it's the reason, at least it didn't appear they assessed for this stuff, and it certainly appears they didn't treat for any of those things, again, based on video evidence and everything else, The which I think is why they got punished pretty severely. You know, the public expectation is that we show up prepared and we're there for the best interest of the patient. And we're going to address the things that our training has taught us might lead to a bad outcome as best we are able to do under the circumstances. And, and I, think I guess you can, case, you, can, you can add to that if you stay with your protocols, which I'm sure includes that before and after assessment, it's, you know, you're probably going to be okay. Well, that, that, that's correct. You know, I, obviously following the protocols is important here, um, but I, I, I think the idea of performing an assessment doesn't need to be part of protocol. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. It's not a protocol that says uh, assess the patient. Duh. Well, that's and, why we're there. And giving a medication always requires an assessment after. Absolutely. Always. That, that Absolutely is, you assess before the medication, you assess after the medication. And depending on the, the patient's appearance, that, that assessment should be probably more frequent. Um, Absolutely. And so there were a lot of things that were clearly dropped. And, and that, again, it comes back to the lesson. Don't find yourself in that trap. Do That's right. fall back on, did I give a medication that could alter mental status and, and alter breathing and heart rate and everything else? Well, then I need to be doing frequent reassessments of this patient. And you're right, Joe. Where's the EKG? Where's the um, everything? <laughs> you know, 100%, right? Yeah. Let's yeah. leave the guy laying face down on the ground so that he can't breathe. Yeah. What? The How about first thing that ought to be done, in my opinion, is get the guy off the ground. 
set him up, lay him on his back, at least allow his rib cage to move so that he can breathe appropriately. And let's make sure that he is breathing appropriately. He needs a pulse ox. Maybe he needs an entitled CO2. And, and, and I mean, that's just, you know, again, do not take someone else's assessment to be the assessment you use to make your dis- treatment decision because he was not agitated uh, when they arrived. He was already that's in right. physical restraints when they arrived. So did he need chemical restraint? Exactly. And, exactly. you know, and that's, that's, you know, if someone's already in handcuffs, they don't need chemical restraint in my book. Uh, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I guess, I guess there's exceptions to that rule, but you know, certainly in this case and in many other cases I've seen, it's not like the guy's fighting anymore. The police have administered adequate levels of brutane in many cases to get the patient down on the ground, uh, as in this case. And so he doesn't need additional sedation or control. He is unresponsive on the ground. (laughs) You know, we're sort of done with that piece of it. Yeah. Kyle, any thoughts from you? Yeah, Sam. Uh, This case was followed really closely by several of our paramedics in the Valley that work across multiple services from uh, volunteer services like our mountain rescue team, all the way to uh, frontline fire EMS agencies, as well as uh, the ski patrols on the mountains as well. And ketamine is one of the drugs that our paramedics do carry uh, on all across all those different uh, agencies, but we all fall under the same protocol and what we had worked to do over time is, and what we we found over time, many of our providers work across multiple different agencies, right? As as many of us do, right? We'll we'll work for multiple different EMS providers, and so we have perhaps different size vials with different concentrations of the drug, right? And working to standardize that helps set us up for uh, success uh, going forward. Additionally. What we what we talked about and really had a, a good in service with from one of our paramedics on patrol was the being wary of those those mental and procedural shortcuts that once we maybe do them once do them twice we see others do them it starts to feel okay because as we said at the beginning of the podcast right ketamine we've always been told is a relatively safe drug to give and that can maybe for some of us or for some providers can be like, oh, well, nothing bad has happened when I've done this before. I might take the shortcut again, right? I might not have all of my monitoring and assessment equipment. And that's where for those systems that have, right, ALS or, you know, paramedic level providers that are able to give ketamine or and these other uh, narcotics and things, and then you've got uh, BLS providers working with them, we routinely reviewed and we did a focus review of our ketamine administration protocol and what equipment's required. And right, the we don't have to bring a whole monitor with us, right? There are very small and portable, very effective um, entitled CO2 monitoring equipment, right? We have those uh, on the mountain as, as well as right pulse oximetry and things. So that's uh, along with a clause in one of our product in our in our ketamine protocol where um in austere conditions, constant patient engagement and pulse oximetry are minimal monitoring requirements if full patient care monitoring is not possible. So it's like, hey, here's your minimum standard. 
but we encourage you to go above that and empowering your BLS providers to see, to recognize, to speak up, even if they're not the provider in charge on a scene where you have a paramedic that is lead, to be able to have that BLS provider say, hey, we're missing something, we're missing a step, and have have empower them to speak up, to act, and to intervene so that we don't run into these similar situations in future. Yeah, exactly. And apparently, Joe, I don't know, you, you know, the doctor's groups that you go to, that, that people are starting to question whether excited delirium is really a thing. Um, and the other thing that comes up is, is this scaring medics to the point where they going to be hesitant to give it when it is necessary? Like, I, I'm not, I don't want to go to jail for 16 years, so I'm, I'm maybe not sure. going to do this. Uh, I think those are legitimate questions. Um, you know, I think that, um, as both Kyle and Jamie pointed out, uh, complacency on the part of the medic, medics, uh, certainly crept in there. You know, even crazy people get sick. Uh, and we have to maintain our objectivity in assessment and management of whatever's going on with those patients. Um, I, I think that uh, my personal opinion is that ketamine is a safe drug. Uh, like all drugs, it needs to be used properly. It needs to be monitored appropriately. Uh, there's times when it's not the right drug, but uh, I think we have to be careful, uh, for example, as we've seen in Colorado, where the drug has been blamed for uh, a death that the drug may or may not have been responsible for the death. I, I think there's an awful lot more to it, and that's a quick, easy thing to fix, but uh, I'm not sure we're really fixing the right problem there. Um, uh, and I think something else that Jamie touched on earlier is it it was pretty apparent to me that uh, law enforcement during this trial was happy to offer up EMS as the sacrificial lamb. Uh, they're they're not they're not our friends uh, from that perspective. We have absolutely got to work with them and do the best we can do to make the system work. But when those guys are looking at going to jail, they're happy to say, oh, uh, we didn't tell him to do that. That was all the medic that did that. Of course, yes. <laughs> so be very careful. They are quick to throw you under the bus. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and the last point has to do with training, which Jamie was talking about. Uh, you know, when they were asked those questions, because they always go back to the training, they they said they had to, were told to work quickly to treat excited delirium with ketamine, and they were told numerous times that it was a safe, effective drug, and were not warned about the possibility of killing anyone. So I think there there's maybe some fault there too. Having been a trainer, if we're not training these people about the real world implications, even though they may be rare, that's a problem. Right. Well, but but Sam, I think you're touching on the point, and that is that ketamine. Clearly, people need to be educated properly on any drug that they give, including potential side effects. But 
I'm not certain that we can blame ketamine for that man's death. I don't know that that's what caused it. It may have contributed to it, but it also may have been, I was going to say it may have been used appropriately here. In retrospect, that's probably incorrect because, right, the guy was not terribly agitated and fighting with people and all that sort of stuff. But in situations where the patient has been fighting and agitated and severely delirious and all that sort of stuff, and that drug is administered so that we can assess and treat the patient and they subsequently die, I don't know that ketamine is the source of the problem. I am concerned that they are. there are multiple factors that are leading to those patients' deaths. And what we need to do in EMS is be looking for those things and attempting to correct, reverse, and mitigate as many of those things as we can. Yes, the drug may contribute, but if we can get the guy's potassium down, then maybe the drug won't have a bad effect this time because it had something to do with something else, right? So I'm just cautioning against blaming the drug when there are many other things going on with these patients that make it very difficult to ascertain the reason that this individual person died, right? Maybe this man's narrow coronary artery had a lot to do with it, especially in an environment where he was acidotic and hyperkalemic and hyperthermic and hypoglycemic and, oh, some ketamine on board. And, oh, by the way, he got punched in the chest five times and uh, had positional asphyxia. Which one of those things accounted for it? Uh, All of those? I I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's just, it's easy to blame the drug, but I think it, that that's a very narrow look at things and and it's not really addressing the problem. You know, if you look at the safety profile of ketamine in animal models and in its use in patients in general, it is indeed a very safe drug. Yeah, it's got it, it. Really is. It's a very safe drug when used appropriately. It's safe well, as anything else that we have. And from a from a from an approach of trying to manage behavior and calm a severely agitated patient down, it's a lot better than anything else we've got. So if we're going to blame the drug and throw it out, now we're going to go back to, well, let's just give them some Versed and let's hang around after 20 milligrams of Versed, I am, and wait 30 minutes for it to kick in. And the guy still is agitated. Yeah. And oh, by the way, oh, now we've sedated him so severely we can't wake him up and we're going to have to intubate him. I'm not sure that's a better choice. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, all things have good and bad to them. We just have to use them appropriately. And we have to, as I said earlier, (laughs) assess the patient and manage the issues. 
exactly. Well, you know, as sad as it is, and like you said, I mean, even the coroners couldn't come up with anything specific. At first it was undetermined, and then somebody decided that it was a dose of the ketamine. But like you said, there was a number of factors going on here. And I, but I really don't think the punishment should be 16 years in prison because I have never heard of that uh, in an EMS situation. And I think that's going to have some long ranging. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's certainly concerning to criminalize EMS intervention and response. I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm in support of that. I, I, my sense is, from the overall sense of this case is that the jury came to that conclusion because they showed up unprepared. They did not do their job, i.e. they didn't assess, they didn't manage, they didn't do any of that stuff. And if you looked at the videos, it came across as very, I don't give a damn about this guy. And I, I you know, I, I'm just going to do this and I'm out of here. Y'all take him to jail, right? It came across as they didn't, they just didn't care. Hmm. And I think in a lot of, a lot of the punishment here is you did not respond in the way that the public expects you to respond. And you were not a patient advocate. And you said you did an assessment on the patient, but when we look at the video, we don't see any assessment at all. Uh, so you're, we think you're lying to us. The, the jury doesn't like that, right? That, I don't think they were judging as much on the patient care as they were about the care for the patient. Right. Well, they're getting sentenced tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. It'll be interesting to see where it goes, won't it? Yeah, sure will. But, you know, Jamie, is it not true that it always comes back down to training, isn't it? But even when you get good training, you still have to be in the mindset to want to take care of that patient, right? Well, yes. And, you know, training only goes so far as your willingness to use that training. So that that's that's a key thing um good training is part of it and that's one of the reasons why you know we're happy that joe is continuing to to support the show and come in with um, paragon medical education groups specific knowledge base and his own knowledge base on all of these topics um and you know having great training is is the first step towards great patient care but it's not the end step. And I think that's the lesson here is that you have to implement that training. You have to carry it through all the way to the end, all the way to the hospital, every step of the way. Um, and that's something that, that you can learn. And Paragon does a great job of teaching that kind of stuff through their disaster training, through their cadaver models, through all the things you guys do, Joe, um, really help people understand the end outcomes of their actions when they're dealing with patient care. Well, thanks, Jamie. Uh, you know, we certainly uh, enjoy training people. I think we try to learn from 
the the issues that occur out there and incorporate that stuff into our training. And we hope to actually do some of that. We've got some training upcoming in northwestern Arkansas in about two weeks and in Rhode Island in a couple of weeks after that. So uh, we're looking forward to being on the road. But uh, we're always happy to uh, talk with folks so that we can customize a training program that suits their needs. Uh, they can always find us at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group or through the Disaster Podcast. Thanks, Joe. Um, Kyle, where can folks find you? Well, Jamie, folks can find me on all the social media platforms under the handle WXKyleNelson. So feel free to follow along, connect with me there, and continue the conversation. And it's great having you on the show tonight. I'm glad you're able to make it. Absolutely. And just uh, one thing I wanted to to throw in here um, right at the end, just sort of uh, to think about it just from a, a little bit of a different lens uh, as well with with all with all this, right? We've, we've talked a lot about the clinical side of it, the, the organizational side. But I think the one piece that we didn't touch on, I'll just I'll briefly just say this is right. These incidents don't occur in a vacuum. They they don't occur in a silo anymore. Very quickly, these things can spread and become public and have not just implications on those individual providers, the patient, the patient's family, the community, but now it's the agency, the city, the jurisdiction, and sometimes even the profession as a whole. Think of the distrust in in law enforcement that and the skepticism that developed with active shooter response post Uvalde. This had a, a very similar effect in some circles as well. Very good, very well said, Kyle. Thank you for sharing that too. Agreed. Sam, where can folks find you? Well, the usual social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley Eleven in our Facebook group for Disaster Podcast and DisasterPodcast.com. What about you, Jamie? Well, you can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media locations. And remember, when you head over to DisasterPodcast.com, there are links right there below the audio player on any of the episode pages to help you subscribe to the podcast using your favorite mobile device. Or on the right-hand sidebar, there are links there to subscribe in a variety of ways, including by email if you want. So don't miss any of our upcoming episodes as we get into the active weather season that is the spring and summer months. And uh, so you want to be weather uh, ready to go when we have ready the report on disasters that come up throughout the rest of the year. And uh, that's going to wrap it up for me, Sam. Um, thanks for pulling this episode together, you and Joe. And I think it's an important topic and an important lesson for all of us. Yeah, great information, Joe. We appreciate your giving us all of that. And we're so glad Kyle was here, too. But as far as our tagline for tonight, I can't say it any better than Kyle just did. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs>